Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. I've been talking about Learn True, T-R-U-E, History.com. You've heard about it several times in the introduction of this podcast. So get on out to LearnTrueHistory.com to get history the way it was intended to be told with no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. But not only that, I've got my new How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, my forthcoming book. So I want you to go to LearnTrueHistory.com to sign up for that great program. But also, if you go to BlameHamilton.com, you can get in on some giveaways for my forthcoming book. So two websites for you, LearnTrueHistory.com and BlameHamilton.com. Get in on both of those things. LearnTrueHistory.com is the place to go to learn history the way it was intended to be told. BlameHamilton.com is where you learn about how Alexander Hamilton was the greatest villain in American history. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 87. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to mention a few things. First and foremost, all the promotions for my forthcoming How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America are set. All you got to do is pre-order a book or two or more. Uh, you can go out to BlameHamilton.com. All of the rules and uh, information is available there at BlameHamilton.com. Basically, if you pre-order one, you get a ebook the jeffersonian solution if you pre-order two or more you get the ebook and a six lecture course on alexander hamilton so uh, it's a deal too good to pass up you're also entered into a drawing for a master level membership to liberty classroom anyone who pre-orders one or more books is entered into that particular drawing so uh, going out there and pre-order the book all you got to do is go to blamehamilton.com and all the information is available there also if you like this podcast i would be obliged if you shared around on social media Tell your friends about it. Uh, you can go out and uh, like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, like my YouTube page. Um, all you got to do is search for Brian McClanahan. Also, if you go to brianmcclanahan.com, you can sign up for my email list. Just give me an email, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders. Also, you get a free audiobook of Forgotten Founders. So lots of goodies out there. I'm really excited about how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. Ron Paul wrote the foreword, so uh, that's a that's a very exciting thing for me, uh, and I hope you'll enjoy that as well. So go on out there, get involved in the promotional uh, period, the giveaway period. It ends once the book comes out September 18th. So we've got a couple of months, but get in on it early. Uh, and again, order a couple, uh, because if you do, you're going to get that six-lecture course. Okay. So this particular podcast today, episode 87, is going to focus on a question that was actually brought up uh, through email, and it has to do with the political parties. So there's uh, this perception that goes around out there that uh, somehow the political parties have flipped, right? They've reversed themselves. You know, the Republicans now uh, used to be the Democrats, and the Democrats now used to be the Republicans. 
Uh, and so uh, we've got this, uh, this skewed situation where the parties are not what they used to be. Well, and so the question was, can you explain how this happened or did it actually happen? Well, to make a long story short, and I'm going to give you the short answer, no, the parties have not flipped. Uh, but I am going to explain how all of this worked, why this perception exists, why people think, well, the Republicans now used to be the Democrats, and the Democrats used to be the Republicans. So I'm going to talk about that. And there are some things that you could say that maybe that might uh, be uh, somewhat true. Uh, and this actually goes back, there's a little video that Prager University has put out uh, talking about the Republican Party, and in fact, the Democratic Party, and how uh, the Democratic Party was the party of slavery, and the Democratic Party was the party of segregation, and Jim Crow, and all these, and the Republican Party have always been the good guys. They've always been the good guys, and uh, this is why you know the Democrats should never be trusted. And this is a very sophomoric, simplistic, and frankly stupid analysis of the two parties. Uh, but Prager University has put out some pretty stupid videos, and that's just one of them. I think this one came out maybe two, three weeks ago. So let's talk about the formation of these parties and then what happened and why people think there's been a flip, why people think the Democrats are now the Repub or the, uh, the old Democrats are now the Republicans and vice versa. So first and foremost, let's talk about the Republican Party. The Republican Party was formed in 1854 in Wisconsin. And one thing you can say about the Republican Party, and what I would say about it, it's the same Republican Party. Uh, it, it, uh, it hasn't really changed. In this particular way, uh, it, it is the exact same party. When the Republican Party was formed in 1854, it was a sectional party that represented the North. In that, though, there was a brand of economic nationalism that they've never dropped. The Republican Party favored a Hamiltonian economic system, meaning a central banking, uh, 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 federally funded internal improvements. Um, they favored uh, a, a enlarged uh, economy when it came to government promotion of industry and commerce. Uh, so these are things the Republican Party had long favored, and they still favor those things. Uh, they still favor central banking. They still favor the government promotion of commerce and industry. Uh, all those things are still true for the Republican Party. They've never changed in that way. Uh, so it was a brand of Hamiltonian economic nationalism. Now, they do not favor protective tariffs anymore. Uh, they have dropped that for what they often call free trade. Now, of course, the Trump administration sang a different tune during the 2000 uh, run-up to the 2016 election. He talked about fair trade. Uh, but free trade basically became the protection of the late 20th century. And how do, can I say that? Well, the free traders of the late 20th century, the NAFTA people, the GATT people, that was the same type of economic interest as old protection. Because what they figured out was that you know protection uh, doesn't really work for them, but being able to put a factory in China or Mexico or Guatemala or Vietnam is going to work well for these companies because they can make more money doing that. Protection used to be a form of corporate welfare uh, in that you would have a protective tariff and the people that own these, these companies would then make a lot of money because uh, the tariff would enrich them. So in this case, when you have free trade, let's say you own a textile company, which a lot of textile manufacturing moved from the United States 
to other countries once you had NAFTA and GATT. So if you have a textile company and you're able to move your company to, say, Vietnam or to Guatemala or to Mexico, uh, you're going to make more money because, let's say you're manufacturing t-shirts, you're not going to drop the price of that t-shirt. You're just going to charge the same amount, but your profit margin is going to be higher. So real free trade, what that would do is force the cost of products to come down uh, because there will be competition, and that would be the point. Uh, the competition would drive the price of products down, and of course, uh, therefore, the consumer would benefit from that because the cost of these things would be lower. Now, there are cheap products. I mean, if you go to Walmart and you want to purchase some clothing, uh, you can get cheaper clothing at Walmart. But the price of clothing has not really gone down. Now, if you index for inflation and other things, uh, your, your price of clothing has not gone up tremendously. But still, uh, the idea of free trade, of competition in this regard, would be to drive the price of products down. And we haven't really seen that. Uh, in the in the modern economy, so free trade worked to the benefit of major corporations, American industry at the time, uh, and that was a, a benefit for the the rich uh, political class that would favor economic nationalism. Now, as we've gotten forward, as we've moved forward, of course, we've talked about fair trade. A lot of that has been born out of blue collar resistance to this type of internationalism, this, this, uh, this global economic activity, globalism. Uh, so the blue-collar Americans are saying, look, uh, we want some manufacturing jobs back here in the United States, uh, and we want these companies to come home. We don't want them to keep money offshore. We want them to invest this money in America and Americans. So the idea of fair trade, of course, is to uh, tear up these free trade agreements, which aren't really free trade agreements. They, they uh, are more like corporate welfare. They want to tear these things up and have these companies come back to the United States and manufacture things here. Now, one benefit of uh, this, this more global economy has been that foreign companies have come into the United States and started putting factories all over the United States. I mean, in the South has been a a major region for this because of its labor, uh, its labor climate, its right-to-work climate. Uh, so you don't have labor unions in the South like you do, say, in the Midwest and other places where they're very powerful. Uh, you don't have that in the South. So in the South, you've gotten a lot more automobile manufacturing. The Korean companies like Kia and Hyundai have built plants. You've got Mercedes-Benz. You've got Toyota. You've got Nissan. You've got several companies that have come in uh, and put uh, and put. Uh, factories in uh, the South. You've also got German steel manufacturing companies coming in and building factories in the South. So there are things going on uh, where foreign companies have come in. American companies have invested overseas, but foreign companies have come in and started building factories here because the cost of building a Kia in, say, uh, you know, North, in South Korea and then shipping it to the United States is more expensive than just building it here. Now, a lot of the parts do come in from overseas, and then they're just assembled here. But you also have uh, various uh, manufacturing plants that have been established throughout the South, close to these Kia and Hyundai plants that manufacture the components as well. So uh, these these foreign companies have come in. So in that regard, you have a little different perspective on manufacturing. But that aside, the Republican Party has always been an economic nationalist party. Uh, and I know there's been some discussion about you know audit the Fed and 
and take care of you know end the Fed these type of things. But that is a and of course for libertarians, I mean that's you know getting rid of central banking is uh, something that's very important. But the libertarian faction of the Republican Party is a very small portion of it. Most Republicans don't really want to audit the Fed or edit the Fed or end the Fed. The Fed is doing exactly what they wanted to do. They believe in strong central banking. If you listen to the Republican economists, this is what they'll tell you. They're, they're no different than their Democrat counterparts in that regard. They all believe in central banking. So uh, the Republican Party really hasn't changed. Now, some would say, well, it's changed in terms of its social positions. When the Republican Party was founded, of course, it was an anti-slavery party. But it was anti-slavery in that it didn't want slavery extension into the territories. And the Republican Party had a very nasty history of race relations, just like uh, the Democrat Party. Uh, a lot of your Midwestern Republicans were the, some of the most ardent racists in the United States. Uh, if you go back and you look at uh, what these Republicans are saying, that in fact, uh, a historian who's typically very bad uh, is Eric Foner. He wrote a wonderful book on the early Republican Party entitled Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men. And it gets into this uh, issue of race and the Republicans and some of the things he used to say. In fact, uh, things like Jim Crow segregation were actually invented in northern cities, and then the South copied those, and that became part of southern social relationships in the late 19th century. But uh, those all originated in the North. Uh, and so you had uh, the Republican Party in this perception of a party that's in favor of equality of the races and these things, but it really wasn't. Uh, in fact, the only reason they would typically support any of this type of stuff is because they wanted votes, and they realized that uh, former slaves in the South would vote for Republicans. So they gave lip service to uh, equality, and they gave lip service to uh, you know ending uh, the the uh, evil racial practices of Southerners and these type of things, but they really didn't believe it a whole lot. Now, you can say that the Republicans uh, moving forward into the 20th century were behind a lot of the civil rights legislation. They supported it. Uh, and so you had Democrats. Eventually, the Democrats came on board with that type of stuff. And so there was a coalition of uh, liberal Democrats and Republicans that uh, fostered this type of civil rights legislation. And until the 1960s, you really couldn't find many African Americans in the South or in the United States in general that voted Democrat. They voted Republican. Uh, and uh, it wasn't until, say, the 1960s or actually more into the 1970s that you started seeing more African Americans in the United States voting Democrat. So... The, the Republican Party has always been the party of Lincoln. It's always been the party of economic nationalism, uh, big government when it comes to a fusion of finance and industry and government. It's always been that. Uh, it's always been that type of political party. Nothing's really changed there. Uh, so why do people think that the Republican Party used to be the Democrat Party? Well, because in 1964, Barry Goldwater, when he ran against Lyndon Johnson, um, was was interested in states' rights and real federalism. Uh, Barry Goldwater had come out and said, well, look, I think the 1964 Civil Rights Act uh, is, uh, is unconstitutional. I believe, he said, I believe in civil rights, but the states have to do these things. And, of course, Barry Goldwater was very much behind ending any type of racial discrimination in his home state of Arizona. But he thought it was a state issue, not a federal issue. Now, Goldwater eventually backtracked on that and, and said, well, a 64 Civil Rights Act is okay. 
But in 1964, several deep southern states voted Republican for the first time since Reconstruction because of Goldwater's stance on federalism. So there was this perception that, oh, here are the Republicans now. They're, they're just interested in these things because they're all just a bunch of, of evil racists in the South. Uh, and you had several former Democrats move into the Republican Party. Several high-profile Democrats move into the Republican Party. Uh, so that's why people think the Republican Party has somehow flipped. I would say it really hasn't. Uh, that, uh, you know, basically the, the Democratic Party moved left. And so you had, and I'll talk about that in a second. So you had conservatives across the United States not really knowing where to go. Uh, the only option for them, at least they thought, was the other major party, which was the Republican Party. And in 1896, which I've already talked about, I talked about the 1896 election on this podcast, the Republicans seemed to be the more conservative party. In fact, you had William McKinley out there with a quote-unquote Southern strategy. Go down south, be sympathetic with Southerners, uh, you know, talk about reconciliation. And you had uh, several Southerners, or you had a lot of Southerners, not just several, but many Southerners vote Republican in 1896 because the Democrat Party was moving left. Uh, now, the Democrat Party still carried the South, but you had a large number of, of Southerners think about the Republican Party for the first time in, in its history, really. Um, and so uh, that was really a, a watershed election. Now, the Democrats moved back right again by 1904, but after that point, they continued to move left. And as they continued to move left, uh, there were more and more Southerners thinking about the Republican Party. Now, the Republican Party was still very uh, was still not very powerful in the South. Uh, you, the Democrat Party still controlled the South, but you had people thinking about the Republican Party. And so, when Goldwater came around in '64, it wasn't hard for some uh, Southerners to vote Republican. So let's talk about the Democrat Party. Uh, has the Democrat Party flipped? Was it the old Republican Party? Well, no. Uh, I mean, the Democrat Party was a truly national party. Uh, the 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 uh, first version of the Democratic Party that we have today, or the first you know that's always been the Democratic Party, was the party of Jackson, right? I mean, so Andrew Jackson comes into office in uh, in 1829, and uh, he's a much more populist individual. I just talked about Andrew Jackson in the last podcast, and that's the party. I mean, the modern Democratic Party is the party of Jackson. It's not the party of Jefferson. It's more the party of Jackson because Jackson was a much more national figure. Uh, and so the Democrat Party was always a coalition of uh, you know, northern and southern in individuals who were interested in particular principles. And those principles tended to be federalism. Uh, they tended to be an economic model that was anti-Hamiltonian. And so uh, that Democratic Party existed until essentially 1861, when the South left. The Northern Democrats, many Northern Democrats, uh, moved into the Republican Party. Uh, and some of them, when the war was over, moved back to the Democratic Party. Uh, and so you had, for a time, the Democrats still being this conservative party. Uh, and so it was uh, you know, in interested in things like free trade, real free trade, which was not any type of corporate welfare or uh, you know, handouts to large industry and, uh, and uh, American commerce. Uh, it was interesting. It had an anti-central banking model. Uh, it had um, a, an anti-internal improvements model uh, when it came to economics. 
Uh, so the Democrat Party was very much interested in what we would look at today. If you're a libertarian, well, that's much more libertarian economic model. And this is true. So it's abandoned that. But I would say the Democratic Party really hasn't, I mean, it's still a national party. Some of the things that they discussed, I mean, when you talk about this idea of, of anti-government, uh, an anti-government fusion of finance and, and uh, of course, capital and government, um, that still is part of the Democratic Party. I mean, these Occupy Wall Street people don't really realize it, uh, but they're basically echoing a very much a, a Jeffersonian principle there that goes back to Jefferson and John Taylor of Caroline and their distrust of big banks and big business. But what they really didn't want was a fusion of big banks, big business, and big government. And so in that way, you know, that part of, of the Democrat Party really hasn't changed a whole lot. They've moved to a Marxist perspective of this, but uh, they're still very interested, some of them, in that type of uh, anti uh, finance capital. Um, now, I think they're doing it for the wrong reasons, but that, that type of rhetoric is still there. Uh, one thing you can say about the Democrat Party is they have moved left in terms of their ideas on government. So the Democrat Party became interested, much more interested in government activity uh, when it came to regulation of business finance capital. And, and many of them thought, even Grover Cleveland, uh, Grover Cleveland signed into into uh, signed into law the first major uh, bill for the regulation of commerce. It created the interstate com it was the Interstate Commerce Act, and it created the ICC, the Interstate Commerce Commission. So Grover Cleveland actually signed this thing into law because he believed that regulation was important. Now here's here's the interesting thing about the Democrats as you get into the early 20th century. By the 19-teens, the Democrat Party, of course, with the election of Woodrow Wilson, controlled the executive branch and the Congress, the legislative branch. And the men who were basically in power at that time, the Democrats in the Congress, many of them were from the South. You had people like Oscar Underwood uh, from Alabama and Carter Glass of Virginia and Henry Stegall of Alabama uh, and Henry DeLamar Clayton of Alabama. So you had... Uh, a large number of Southerners, and then even moving forward, because the Democrats' party still was very strong in the South. Uh, you had people like Sam Irvin of North Carolina, uh, who was very powerful. Uh, you had uh, a, a number, a Richard uh, Russell of Georgia, uh, who was very, very powerful. So you had a number, even Lyndon Johnson of Texas. You had a number of, of Democrats in power uh, from the South. Now, that strain of distrust for the Northeast was still there. And so when you look at the economic activity or the economic models that these Southerners were pursuing in the early 20th century, it still was very Jeffersonian, but they had dropped their distrust of big government. And a lot of that happened because of William Jennings Bryan in 1896. Uh, when Bryan was nominated by the Democrats, he, of course, had moved the party left. So what had happened is these, these people, even Woodrow Wilson at one time was a conservative Democrat. But what happened is these conservatives believed that the government could be the vehicle to get some of the things they wanted. And one of the things they wanted was to attack the fusion of government, finance, and industry. Uh, Wilson, the Wilson administration lowered the tariff. That had long been a Democratic Party platform. They lowered the tariff. But what they also did was favor regulation. They favored the Federal Reserve. 
In their mind, the Federal Reserve, the idea behind that was to take the control of capital out of the hands of Northeastern businessmen like J.P. Morgan or John Rockefeller. I mean, that was the whole point. It was to try to break that monopoly on credit uh, that they believed Northeastern businessmen had. Now, the, the monster they created was even worse because when the Federal Reserve was created at Jekyll Island, uh, the people involved in that were basically the big banks and, and uh, you know big commercial interests. And so they created something they could control. But the idea was simple. I mean, you had people like Arsene Pujo in, uh, in Louisiana. He was very critical of, uh, of this... Uh, banking industry that had grown up in the United States. And he was also critical of the Federal Reserve because he didn't think it went far enough. The, the, the banking interests were still involved in it. It really wasn't a departure from this national banking system that they had long opposed. But Democrats at this time, people like Underwood and Glass and Stegall and, and Clayton, what they believed was that they could use the vehicle that the Republicans had created, a much more powerful central authority, to get back at northeastern economic interests. So this is why you had things like the Underwood Tariff. The Underwood Tariff reduced the tariff, but it also in increased the income tax because the income tax at this time was targeted only the top earners. And I think the top, there was only a few people that were actually paying income taxes when the Underwood Tariff uh, was passed. And of course, this enlarged income tax. Uh, but they were going after these New England and New York businessmen. That was the whole point. Uh, and, of course, then you had things like uh, the Clayton Antitrust Act. Again, it was designed to go after these northeastern businessmen, to break up these big companies that they thought were hurting Southerners. Uh, there was actually concerted effort this time to spend money on farmers. So, in some ways, these progressives in the Wilson administration were still following the same line that they had followed before, the party of farmers, the party of working class people, uh, they just thought that big government now could be the solution to the problem. The Republicans had created this big government. They had created this very powerful central authority. Democrats had long fought against it. But by the 20th century, they thought, oh, well, we've already got it. Can we not use this apparatus to get back at these northeastern businessmen, these big businessmen up there? We can tax them. We can regulate their industries. We can do things to try to help working class people. So they weren't Marxists. These Democrats weren't Marxists. They were just old Jeffersonians who thought, well, we can use government to do what we want. Now, so they had dropped that distrust of big government. But in some ways, their, their principles were still very much Jeffersonian. Now, today, I think you can make the case that the Democrats are much more Marxist influenced. They're not Jeffersonians, they're Marxists. Uh, so they've dropped that whole uh, you know, situation that you had in the early 20th century where the progressives controlled the Democrat Party. Uh, actually, you know, many Southern historians who study the New South have said, look, the progressives were the old conservatives in the South. They had just decided that, again, just as I said, uh, you could have government be the vehicle to get what you want. Um, and so uh, they were still very conservative. In fact, you know, Oscar Underwood, after he retired from the Senate, wrote a really interesting little book uh, blasting American finance capital, and not just that, a strong central authority. Uh, he actually realized during the Wilson administration that this government stuff is going a little bit too far, and he started working against it. Uh, but 
uh, you had um, uh, Underwood, and you had some other uh, very prominent uh, Southern uh, individuals, people like A.O. Bacon and John Warwick Daniel. In fact, uh, there was a point in time in the Congress when you had a group of, uh, of Southern representatives called the Confederate Brigadiers. Uh, that's what they were disparagingly called because they would continually talk about the Jeffersonian tradition. Now, a lot of them died off by the early 20th century, but some of them s still were uh, around into the early 1900s. And then, of course, that second generation, people like Underwood and, and Clayton and others. Uh, Henry D. Lamar Clayton's father was a, was a Confederate general. Uh, but these guys were much more sympathetic to uh, government control, but still... A lot of them still spoke of federalism and states' rights and these things. You had people like Josiah Bailey, who I talked about on the podcast, on that next generation, you know, Bailey and Irvin and Russell and people like that. Uh, of course, Bailey uh, was a little bit older than Irvin and Russell. Uh, so um, he was kind of that transitionary period between Underwood and uh, you know Glass and some of these people, and then uh, Irvin and Russell. Uh, so you still very much had a states' rights strain of the Democratic Party, uh, limited government strain in some ways, uh, even into the middle of the 20th century. Uh, so the Democratic Party um, essentially just lost that faction. Uh, you started seeing a much more nationalist pers perspective from the Democrat Party. They had always been a Nash, quote-unquote national party. They had had representatives north, south, west, uh, and they just, they just moved left. Uh, particularly when it came to identity politics and uh, the coalition, which the Democratic Party now is no more than a group of factions unified in their belief that the government has to be the solution to any of their problems. So whether it's the Marxists who want to, you know, the, the Occupy Wall Street people, uh, the, uh, the anti-FA people, uh, whatever this is, or you have... Uh, the minority factions that now believe that government is the answer, government regulation, uh, you know, government uh, legislation to try to uh, level society, whatever it is. I mean, they're, they're much more Marxist. Their, their core belief is that big government's the solution. Um, so in that way, the, really what's happened is the Democrat Party has left its core constituents. And so they didn't have anywhere to go but into the Republican Party. There is no conservative party in America anymore. The Republican Party has never been conservative. It still isn't conservative, not in an old Jeffersonian tradition. Uh, the Democrat Party just abandoned those people. So really what's happened is the parties haven't flipped. It's just that conservatives were looking for a party. So this is why in 1896 you had the interest in the National Democratic Party, the NDP, why you've had some discussions, particularly in the last 30 to 40 years, about forming a conservative party. Uh, you know, there was very much a push for this in 1976 when Ronald Reagan lost out to Gerald Ford and the Republican nomination. There was some talk at that point about forming a third party. Uh, this is why libertarians, uh, you know, they've been looking for somewhere to go. They don't have a home. Uh, you know, when you have the, the split, you, you have neoconservatives and paleoconservatives. Paleoconservatives really don't have a home in the Republican Party. Uh, they're a party that uh, favors the old Jeffersonian party. Uh, uh, positions on a variety of issues. Uh, they're, they're you know, interested in Grover Cleveland-type democracy, and it just doesn't exist in the Democrat Party. So the Democrat Party simply just abandoned one of its core constituencies. And you saw that even in the 2016 election when it basically abandoned white working-class Americans. Uh, it's done that too. White working-class Americans really have nowhere to go. 
So they voted for Republicans. And of course, they're going to be disappointed because the Republican Party uh, doesn't ever really support uh, the things that white working class Americans want. Now, of course, Trump's rhetoric, his nationalist economic rhetoric, uh, has, uh, brought, uh, has brought companies to the bargaining table. And some companies are talking about putting factories back in the United States, moving them back from overseas and bringing them here. So in that way, maybe they, you know, there's been some success. But you know, Hillary Clinton lost because she didn't, she didn't support these people anymore. And I think that's, that's more, it's more an indictment of what the Democrats have done. They've abandoned the people that had long supported them for a coalition of minority factions that believe in big government. I mean, that's simply it. Uh, so the Republican Party has never changed. It's always been the party of Lincoln. It's always been the party of, of you know, bigger government. It's always been the party of economic nationalism. It still is. It still is. That's never changed. It doesn't really believe in federalism. It gives lip service to it because it knows if it speaks that way, it's going to get Southerners and conservatives to vote for it. But once in power, we're seeing it, it doesn't really believe in it. Uh, even things that Richard Nixon promoted uh, when, when you started looking at what he called new federalism, and the Republicans started insisting on things like block grants and uh, programs like that, that's still a form of, of uh, nationalism, without a doubt. Uh, it's just a different form of nationalism. Uh, th what, they, what they were talking about there is the government still controlling the states, and they're graciously giving the states money that they already should have anyways. So all of that stuff is still just the Republican Party and a top-down approach. So it's not changed. The Democrat Party has abandoned its, its old constituents. So the Democrat Party has moved left. Uh, and this is why they talk about you know getting rid of the Jackson Jefferson Day dinners and things like that because they think that these guys are just not examples of the modern Democrat Party. And so in that way they have they aren't the old Republicans. What they are is just abandoning their core constituents. They basically made a new party. Uh, so conservatives, libertarians, people like that in America today really don't have a party. Uh, you know, and and in some ways, I mean, what we advocate is federalism. So you should look at that at your state and local level. This is the think locally, act locally mantra that I, that I preach all the time. You don't really have a, a, a national party, quote unquote, national party. So get involved in state and local politics. Uh, I just got the, uh, the Austrian from Mises yesterday, and there's an article by Ron Paul in it, and he talks about nullification and secession. Look at state action at your state and local level. Look at local action to try to get the society and community that you want. I mean, that's you have to get involved there. Uh, so this whole idea of a flip, I mean, it really never happened. Uh, yes, many conservative Southerners moved to the Republican Party because they had nowhere else to go, but the Republican Party didn't move to them. Uh, it's just the Democratic Party abandoned them. And the Republican Party is still controlled by the, the uh, what they call the neoconservatives, the foreign policy has always been such that uh, you know it's very much an interventionist foreign policy. It was that way in the 1860s. It was that way in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, early 2000, early uh, 20th century, early 1900s into the modern 21st century. It just hasn't changed. The Democrats have just left their core constituents. So that's the answer to the question: Are these parties did they flip? No, they didn't flip. It's just there really isn't a a place for. Uh, much more limited government people in America anymore. It doesn't exist. The Republican Party was the only place they could go, but it never really went to them. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. Don't forget, go out to blamehamilton.com, get your promotions, 
do that now because they will go away when the book is released uh, September 18th. So get in on that now. Uh, be among the, the many, 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 many cool people who have already done this and get that book, get it pre-ordered. You can pre-order it. I'll even take it uh, if you pre-order it uh, for an ebook, you know, a Kindle book. You get it that way too. So no worries there. Just pre-order the book and uh, enjoy the ebook that I gave you, The Jeffersonian Solution. And if you order two or more, you get that class and it is worth it, uh, you know, to get that class because I kind of open up the book to you. I, I, I tell you what's in the book before you even get it, and I go over several parts of the book. So uh, it's uh, it's it's a it's well worth your time to buy a couple of books. Give one to a Hamilton lover you know, and let them uh, hopefully change their perspective on that very first American villain. I'll see you next time on the Brian McClendon Show.